Well, there is a battle being waged in the Crows household these days. My wife and I are at war. And we are at all-out war with three tiny words that my girls continue to say that drive me nuts. I don't, say it with me now, care. I don't care. Are there any words as infuriating in the English language as the words, I don't care? Hey, you colored on my picture. I don't care. Hey, girls, if you don't uh, pack your lunches, you're not going to have food for school today. I don't care. Hey, if you say that to me one more time, you're not going to watch TV tonight. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I freaked out on the other day. I did a little bit. I kind of raised my voice a little bit. And I said, you got to stop saying that. Stop it with the I don't care. You have no idea how rude and disrespectful it sounds to the person that you're saying it to. I don't want to hear anybody say that ever again. And one of my girls looked at me and said, but dad, we don't really mean it. And I said, I don't care. I was like, oh, (laughs) I hate disciplining my kids for stuff that they learned from me. It's just so frustrating. We're in this connected series that we've subtitled Family Resemblance because we're talking about the fact that the people we are and the way that we behave and how we relate to each other are most fundamentally formed in our family context, in the context of our family relationships. By nature and by nurture, we become in our families the people that we are, especially how we relate to each other. And last week, Ben introduced this whole topic to us by talking about two basic premises that drive this entire series. And the first one is this. Every single one of us, whether you like it or not, every single one of us resembles our family both positively and negatively. We all live out the attributes that we learned at home growing up. And I mean beyond, you know, physical appearance and dumb mannerisms and the stuff that we learned to say from our dads in the kitchen. Um... Just the way that we behave, the way that we relate to people, how we view relationships and other people, they're all fundamentally formed in our genetics and in the environment in which we were nurtured. And so last Sunday, as an exercise in this, we got people to think about unwritten or unspoken rules in your family system growing up. Rules that your family lived by, even though nobody ever said it out loud, that define how you relate to people. Right, so I shared with the Welland location last week a couple of rules in our family that nobody ever said, but one of them was this. We don't own anything so valuable that it couldn't be given away to somebody who needs it more than us. That was just, it was an amazing rule and it taught me a lot about generosity. But we had this other rule that would go something like this in our family. We don't need to talk about this with anybody, including, you know, each other. And that's just how I internalized our environment growing up. I'm, I'm sure that's not anything like what my parents wanted us to, how our parents want us to live, but that's what I internalized. And you can begin to see immediately how those sorts of ideas can shape the way then I go now go through the rest of my life relating to the people around me. So that's the first premise. We all resemble our family, positively and negatively to one degree or, the, or another. The second premise is this. We all have a choice about how much we resemble our family moving forward, both positively and negatively. This is within our power 
to choose. Okay, so you, didn't, you don't have genetics or DNA or you don't have a nature that is encouraging and friendly or whatever. You didn't grow up in an environment that nurtured you to be generous and open. You can choose to relate to people differently than how you were raised. You can choose instead to bear a family resemblance. Instead of to the family of origin in those negative ways, you can bear a family resemblance to God in heaven, who is our father and our mother, to Jesus, who is our brother. We can learn to love people the way that Jesus has loved us. And so we encouraged people this week, and I hope you took a moment to do it, to rewrite those unspoken commandments in ways that we think Jesus would have us live them out in the way that we relate to people. And that's what this series is all about. And for the rest of these weeks, we're going to be unpacking some of the ways that we learn to relate as families that now Jesus wants to reshape into brand new ways of relating and loving each other. So this morning, I want to look at a pattern of relating that I think is endemic to families everywhere. That is just true of every family system. It just kind of happens. This is the way. It's almost like page one of the textbook of how to be a family in a really unhelpful kind of way. And it's sort of rooted in this basic premise that we take for granted the people who love us the most. The, The people we take for granted the most, the people we take advantage of the most, are the people who love us the most. Right? It would kind of... It would surface in complaints that we'd have about our families when, when uh, you know, parents would say of kids, well, it seems like they expect me to be the maid and the chef and the baker and the banker and the personal shopper and the butler, but they don't want to do anything to lift a finger to help out around here. They just want me to serve. Comes out in uh, criticisms or complaints that kids would have about their parents. Well, they're never around. They're always at work. Parents might say of kids, they're always out with their friends. And even when they're here, kids would say, they're on their phones, they're on their devices, they're talking to work, they're online. They're... It's like they're not even here. And parents would say the same thing. It's like they spend all evening in their room texting or Snapchat or whatever it is that you do behind the closed doors. Like They're just not around. Comes out in a comment like, um, You know, we're so busy, it feels like we just pass like ships in the night. Everybody's off to their own thing, doing their own thing. It's rooted in this reality that though we're embedded in this web, this social network that we call family, we all essentially are living as individuals doing our own thing. The center of our own universe, living only for what we're going to get out of our relationships with the people around us. We all focus almost exclusively on our own thing. Even in this web of relationships called the family, we live as individuals, by ourselves, for ourselves, in ourselves, with ourselves, caring only about ourselves, and focusing only on ourselves. I'll give you an example of how this works not so well uh, in our families. Um, I shared a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, about Krista's health issues that she's been battling with over the last uh, little while, this recurring collapsing lung issue that she's had for almost a year and a half. And, um, and I mentioned to you that in December, she was admitted to the hospital and underwent a surgical procedure to correct the issue. And she stayed in the hospital for more than a week and was still kind of bedridden at home for almost two weeks. And then 
Um, and then sometime after Christmas, the issue happened again and she had to go back into the hospital for another surgical procedure to try and correct it. Uh, you know, ultimately for a fifth time in the last year and a half, she went under, underwent a procedure to try and deal with this issue. And by the way, she's doing great right now. She went back to work last week. She's working part-time and uh, slowly easing her way back into work and work's been super cooperative and she's meeting with the surgeon in a month to get the all clear and things look like they're going really well now. But I'd shared at that time about how overwhelmed I was at all this responsibility that I now found suddenly dropped in my lap. Right, responsibility to run the household, you know, the laundry and the dishes and the cooking and the cleaning and, the, and all the stuff that had to do with keeping the house going and all this responsibility to take care of the kids. You know, I was doing all of this all by myself, you know, feeding them and clothing them and bathing them and making sure that they had lunches for school and getting them from the bus and putting them on the bus and all this kind of stuff. Like just the kids were all, that was all me. And then, and then it was all me to take care of her parents because Krista's parents need support in various ways at various times and she wasn't able to be any part of that because she was in the hospital and and never mind I got to take care of Krista who's in the hospital I'm going to visit her every day and making sure that she has everything that she needs and that she's kind of propped up and supported and, and the whole time I'm still trying to lead the church and be a part of what's going on here and do my work and preach every week and whatever and I was just sharing about how heavy all of that was and how overwhelmed I was feeling with all of the responsibility and it was only after that we emerged from that season that I began to have a completely different perspective on what was going on during that whole time. Well, I took a step back and I thought, wait a minute, during this whole season of time, my wife is in the hospital undergoing multiple procedures in mortal agony and honestly terrified that now this fourth and fifth procedure aren't gonna solve this issue and then what? Just completely worried about her future. My kids are separated from their mom for stretches of period at a time. And even when she's around, she's really unable to fully participate in what it means to be a family. And they're just wondering when they're gonna get their mom back. Her parents are terrified because their daughter's health seems to be up and down and they don't really know what's going on or whether she's getting any better. And they're worried about her. And I, here I am the whole time, the only person that I'm worried about is me. Every morning I get out of bed and I'm kind of the master of ceremonies at my own little pity party at how hard my life is because now all of this stuff got dumped on me, right? This, this physical illness sure came at an inconvenient time for me and it's kind of wrecking my life and it's making me mad and that's exactly the kind of breakdown that we experience, all of us experience in the way that we live our lives and it comes to the fore most prominently in the way that we treat our family. And we just live in ourselves and with ourselves and for ourselves and by ourselves and care only about ourselves and focus only on ourselves. And honestly, friends, that's not the way that family's supposed to be. It's not. I read this uh, marriage book this week by Rob and Kristen Bell. It's called The Zimzum of Marriage. And Zimzum is their word to describe the way family is supposed to be, the way marriage and love and relationships are supposed to work. So what on earth is a zimzum, right? Well, it's a, it's a medieval theological term coined by a Jewish rabbi. And it, and it goes like, the explanation of it goes like this. This Jewish rabbi in the 1500s was contemplating the creation of the world. And, he, and it, it occurred to him that before the creation of the world, the only thing that existed was God. God was all there was. He was all that was it. God was the sum total of all of the substance that existed 
anywhere. He was everywhere, permeated all things. God filled everything because God was all there was. But this God wanted to create a universe. Now, how do you do that? How do you create a universe when you are all there is and you fill and permeate everything? You are all of everything permeating everywhere. And this Jewish theologian said, well, what God had to do was zimzum. It's a Hebrew word. And it means to contract. God had to withdraw. God had to make himself less. He had to contain or limit himself in order to create a space where the universe could exist. And not just exist, a space where the universe could grow and thrive and flourish because of the love that God was pouring into the universe. And Robin Christen said, this is exactly the way the relationships are supposed to work. That you start and you're kind of the center of your own universe. You're your own center of gravity. You are all that exists in your world. Your whole life is all about you and your goals and your interests and your dreams and your plans and your work and your schedule and your friends and your thoughts and whatever it is that you want, your life is all about you. Right, but then this other person comes into your life and their life is all about them, but you find yourselves now oriented towards each other, attracted to each other, wanting to be with each other, wanting to engage with each other, wanting to spend more time with each other, wanting to um, invite more of that person into your universe. But how do you create a space for that person in your universe? You have to contract. You have to withdraw. You have to limit yourself or contain yourself. You have to become less in order to create a space where they can fit into your life and not just fit or exist, but thrive and flourish because of your relationship with them. What happens is your center of gravity shifts from being entirely about you towards being about them. And as you contract and create a space, they fit into that space. And your sacrifice makes it possible for them to flourish in love, in relationship with you. That's Zimzum, and that's how families are supposed to be. That's how they are when they're at their best. I'll give you an example from my family, uh, and it's a positive example, so it's not about me, it's about Krista. But um, after 11 years of marriage and uh, basically 10 years of begging, Krista recently gave me the green light uh, to go back to school this fall and begin the process of earning my PhD in theology from McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton. Now, uh, before anybody jumps to any conclusions, I'm not going anywhere. I don't know if that's good news or bad news to you, but it is the news. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not quitting my job. I'm not going to work, you know, less hard. I'm going to be here. I'm, I'm, you know, you don't really do a PhD in your spare time, but I'm kind of trying that um, so that I continue to remain as engaged as I am now in what's in the life of our community here. And I'm not doing this, I should say as well, because I'm looking for a career change down the road. I still believe in what some of us have called the 40-year vision. I, um, I want, I'm 18 years into working in this place, and I, one day I want Southridge to hand me a gold watch and say, thank you, we're sick of you, get out of here. Um, but I want, you know, I want that to be, that would be my ideal. But this is about a dream that I've had. 
uh, a goal of finishing my education. And Krista, after a lot of conversations, this seems like the moment where God is making that a reality. But in order for that to be a reality, Krista has to zimzum. She has to contract. She has to, in some ways, become less in order to make space for my dream and for my goal to flourish. She has to um, contract financially because this isn't a cheap thing and there are going to be some unasked for lifestyle choices that we'll probably have to address as we get into this, we, we ha- she has to contract in terms of family expectations because I'm now asking if I can spit, split my time not between work and family, but between work and school and family. And that changes all the sizes of all the different pieces of the pie. That affects marriage time and that affects daddy-daughter time and family time and it affects parenting duties and it affects household chores and it affects all sorts of things that we're too naive to even anticipate right now. There's, there's gonna be a lot of impact, but this is the choice that Krista has made. She's made the choice to make herself less, to, as I think I've done for her in the past, but to make herself less in order to create a space for me and for my goals and for my dreams to flourish and thrive. And that's what families are. That's what family's supposed to be. The people who will drop anything and do anything to rush to your side in order to be whatever you need them to be in order that you could flourish and thrive to be the launch pad of the success of everyone in the family unit. And the reason that's why families are, that's what families are supposed to be is because that's what God is. That's how God has loved us. Whether zimzum is the right word or the wrong word or a stupid word to describe creation, the end of the day, the universe exists not because God had some ulterior motive. It's not because God had a selfish desire. It's not because God had some sort of unmet need in himself and he needed somebody or something else to meet that need in him. God didn't create the universe for himself. The reason the universe exists, the reason you exist, is because God created a space, I believe, in order to create a universe that could be the receptacle of the overflow of his love. God created a universe because he wanted something to pour himself out in love in order to see it flourish and thrive. That's what God is. That's what God is like. That's how Jesus loves. That's what Jesus is like. I could give you a million examples, but I'll offer you just one. And it comes out of Matthew chapter four, where it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. In ancient Jewish culture, around the age of five, little Jewish boys go off to school at the synagogue at a school called Bet Sefer. And it was, a, it was a rabbinical school for Jewish boys to learn the Jewish scriptures. And Bet Sefer lasted from the age of five to the age of 10. And the goal for little Jewish boys during that period of time was to learn the Torah. The, the first five books of the Jewish scriptures 
written by Moses, the Jews say, as instructions about how to live life in relationship with God and the community in a faithful Jewish kind of way. And by the time they were 10 years old, uh, this is my Jewish Bible, by the way, by the time they were 10 years old, the Jewish boys would have memorized word for word and line for line the, the Torah, the five books of Moses. But then at the age of 10, some of those boys would be done with their education and they'd they'd just be finished and they'd be encouraged to go back home and to learn the family business from their parents and to work alongside their dad and and basically take over by the time their dad was done. But some of the students were promising enough that they would graduate to like Jewish high school, which was called Bet Talmud. And in Bet Talmud, the Jewish boys would learn the rest of the scriptures, all 39 books of the Hebrew scriptures. And by the time they were 15 years old, they would have memorized this entire set of scriptures as the instruction of how they are to live faithfully in relationship to God and to people. But at the age of 15, almost all of them would go back to their home and then pick up the family business and begin to work alongside of their dad or whatever. But the elite students who aspired to become a rabbi, those students... Those students would graduate to Jewish university called Bet Midrash. And in Bet Midrash, these 15-year-old guys would approach a rabbi whom they respect and whose teachings they uh, you know, resonate with and so on. And they would approach the rabbi and ask the rabbi whether they could be the rabbi's disciple. Um, where they could learn what he knows and do, learn to do what he does so they could become what he is. And the rabbi would give them a little bit of a test and, and go through an interview process and so on. And if the rabbi believed that these students had what it take, they would say to the students, come and follow me. And it was their invitation to become a disciple to the rabbi, back to the beach. Jesus is walking along the beach and he comes across two brothers, Andrew and Simon, who are fishermen. They've graduated either from Bet Sefer or Bet Talmud, and they're done with school. Somewhere along the way, somebody said to them, listen, I think you've gone as far as your schooling is going to take you. I don't think you have what it takes to be the disciple of a rabbi. I don't think you make the cut. You should probably just go home and learn the family business. Israel needs fishermen too. Go be blessed and well fed. And these guys have gone, having been graduated out of the system, they've gone back to follow the course of learning the family business from their dad until along comes Jesus walking down the beach and he sees this guy, these guys who are followers of no rabbi, not disciples, people who have been pushed to the side, rejected, who hadn't made the cut. No rabbi believed in them enough to take them on as disciples and Jesus doesn't even wait for them to approach him. He approaches them and he says to them, I believe in you. I believe that you have the ability to learn what I know. I have the ability that I, to, I believe that I can teach you to do what I do. I believe that you can begin to become like I am in such a way that together we can become a community of people who will literally change the course of human history. Come and follow me. And what Jesus does is he creates a space in his life for other people to enter in so that he can pour himself in love into their life so that they can flourish and thrive and become beyond anything they could have ever imagined they would be. That's the way Jesus loves. 
We could have talked about how Jesus would create a space at his dinner table and invite in outsiders and outcasts. We could have talked about how Jesus created space in his agenda for perpetual interruption by people who had need. We could have talked about how Jesus creates space in his empathy to see past people's persona and to see them as a person. We could have talked, and we did for a whole month in January, about how Jesus created space in his mission to empower his disciples and give them the opportunity to do what he was doing. Jesus was about continually creating space so that other people could be invited into the orbit of his universe so that he could pour himself out in love for them so that they could flourish and thrive. That's what Jesus does. And he does it at enormous personal cost to himself. In Philippians 2, it says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And the way that you deal with each other, do it exactly the way that Jesus did with you. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus never, even in heaven with God, as God, never had the mentality that he was the center of his own universe. He never ever had the mentality that everything that he had at his disposal, he was supposed to use to advance some agenda of his own that he had for himself. That was never a part of Jesus' thinking. Rather, it says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Instead, what Jesus did is he emptied himself of everything that made of all the components of his godness, he emptied himself of his face-to-face relationship with Yahweh. He emptied himself of his place in heaven in the worship of the angels. He emptied himself of his power and authority. He emptied himself of his heaven and glory. He took all of the godness that he had and he set it off to the side in order to come into the world as a human being who is exactly like us. Still God, but living as a human being on earth, exactly like us. He took everything he had and he set it aside in order to step into our universe and to create a space for us. And being found, it says, in appearance as a man, in poverty and obscurity and humility, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. He even gave up his humanity and his reputation to be tortured to death on a cross. And why? To be tortured to death in order to create a space where he can pour out his love into your life so that you can flourish and thrive and become even beyond anything you ever imagined you could be in your relationship with God, loving and being loved, in your relationship with yourself, experiencing wholeness and healing, experiencing holiness and metamorphosis in your character, in your relationship with other people, experiencing compassion and kindness and patience and gentleness and humility and forgiveness and love in your relationship with the world in your sense of significance and who you are. And Jesus gave up everything for you to flourish and thrive. It's exactly why that's what we think of when we think of family working right. We think of the parents who give up everything to afford their kids every advantage that they never had. We think of parents driving all over the countryside, kicking open doors to give their kids every opportunity that they could even think of to offer. That's what parents do. 
That's what siblings do. They drop everything at a phone call that says, help, I need you. They drop everything and they will pour anything they have into seeing their sibling become everything their sibling has created to be. That's what families do. Now imagine if that's what we did. Not just for our families, but for everybody. If we became the kind of people who opened a space at the dinner table for outsiders and outcasts, if we became the kind of people who opened space in our agenda to be interrupted by other people's needs, if we became the kind of people who opened up space in our empathy to see past the persona and to see people as a person, to open up space in our um, goal setting in order to empower other people to become everything that they had dreamed of becoming. Imagine if we gave each other, um, kind of contracted our busyness in order to give each other the gift of timefulness, where we just have time to be with and invest in each other. If we contracted our distractedness so that we could give each other the gift of attentive. What if we contracted our lifestyle so that we could give each other the gift of provision? And what if we contracted um, our words, our criticism, our cynicism in the way that we speak to and about each other so that we could cheer each other on in the way that the hockey mom at the arena cheers for her kid? What if we cheered for everybody the way that we cheer for our own kids? What if we believed in everybody in the way that we believe in our own kids? I was thinking about this verse this week in Ephesians chapter four where it says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that it would benefit those who, listen, what if we just reclaimed the power of words and said we're gonna use our words to pour love into the lives of everybody else and we're going to empower people to flourish and thrive by what we invest in them, by being willing to contract, to become less so that they could become more the end of the day, I think that's the way Jesus is calling us to love. In the words of John the Baptist, he spoke these words about Jesus himself. John the Baptist, when he was the greatest preacher in Israel, when he was the most popular public figure, when he had the biggest, most vibrant, most flourishing ministry in Israel, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, I must decrease. He must increase. What if that became our mantra for the way that we relate to everybody. I must decrease. They must increase. I must zim zoom to create a space for me to pour out my love and let somebody else flourish and grow. Jesus once said to his disciples, the world will know that I have sent you by the way you love each other. I suspect this is exactly what Jesus meant. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you fill this space? Would you fill our spirits? Would you fill our minds with the awareness of the ways in which we have been living as the center of gravity in our own lives? Would you fill our spirit 
with the awareness of the opportunities and the ways that you're inviting us to pull ourselves back and to create a space to invite other people in. Would you fill our hearts with the kind of love that's eager to pour itself out regardless of the cost? And would you fill our eyes with the kind of hope that would allow us to see what you could do in the lives of others? If only we would have the courage to love the way you do. If only we'd have the courage to resemble your family and be those who are willing to decrease so that others can increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.